have you ever heard a word thinking you knew what it meant, but the person using it was actually using it in a different way? I was a child out of the 80s, and Michael Jackson was a big popular pop star, and he had a song called Bad, meaning good. You know, my friends and I, we'd call, oh man, that's bad, but it meant good. Well, I went into my daughter's room yesterday, and I said, hey, are there any words like this? And she's like, oh, she starts thinking. I'm thinking, like, what do all the cool kids say? Because I need all the help I can get. And so I learned bay. Now, I'd heard this, but when you hear the word bay, you think like a big body of water. But no, that's not what it means. It's spelled B-A-E. And I thought it was, like, short for baby. You know, because you might hear, oh, man, that's my babe. My, my, that man, my, he's my bay. But then I'd find out that you could call pizza your bay or Netflix your bay. And I discovered, Megan informed me, that bay actually stands for beyond, before anyone or anything else. B-A-E. That's my bay. All right, so now you can go be cool too. All right, but she wasn't done. She says, oh yeah, 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 there's another one. Ship. And in my head, there's a great big vessel sitting in the bay. And she's like, no, no, no. This is when you, like, you see a boy and a girl, and you can tell they kind of like each other, and you think they should get together, and you say, I ship that. Because you think they should be in a relationship. So I ship that. Yeah, I was just as confused as all of your looks right now. All right, so ship. Well, today we're going to be talking about the gospel. And this word kind of gets thrown around. And I want to make sure we're all on the same page. That you don't hear someone say gospel and you think one thing when I actually mean something else. Because you see, sometimes the gospel refers to one of the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, if you go to a liturgical church, they would have their gospel reading for the morning. Uh, for some, gospel is like what someone might say. Like it's a, a synonym for truth. You'd say, oh, whatever he says, it, it, take it as gospel. For some, it's a genre of music. Or, or some, it's like the name or the title of a uh, church. You know, a, a gospel, gospel tabernacle. But what is the gospel? That's what we're going to be talking about today, because we're talking about putting go back in the gospel. But before we can talk about going, we got to say, what is the gospel? And we have to answer that. Um, I found, I read a book a couple years ago called What is the Gospel? And it was actually really good, really helpful. And uh, I went online and I was, I was looking like, could I actually get that for our church family? And I just felt like it probably wasn't the best use of our funds and money. But I discovered they had a pamphlet. So a whole book has been reduced down to a really cheap pamphlet. And so right now the ushers are going to pass those out. Uh, each of you could take one. And the good thing is if I get really, really boring here in a little bit, at least you have something with good, solid content. And you're going to walk out today with something of value. Um, but this is not designed to be a tract that you go out and you pass around. I, I'm giving this to you so that you just have like a basic understanding of this is what the gospel is. Because there's a lot of confusion out there. But we're not going to sit spend our time reading through that today. I'm going to give you our definition that basically sums up what you read in there. The, the definition here at Riverwood of the gospel is this. The gospel is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the complete and perfect image of Jesus. Let me say that again. The gospel is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the complete and perfect image of Jesus. And how God does that is through the cross 
of Christ. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God does this. Now, I've had this definition for, I don't know, three, four years. And the more I've been working with it, the more and more I like it. Because first it talks about how the gospel is an ongoing story. It's not just like a one-moment hit wonder in history. Or it's not even like just a moment in your own life. Like, hey, I accept the gospel, now i got to mature on to greater things. No, it captures this idea that this is an ongoing story. That when Jesus died on the cross and broke out of that tomb, it reverberated through history. And it still is impacting people today. What I also like about this uh, definition is that you do not have to clean up your act before you come to God. It's, it's impossible. God is taking broken and imperfect people. The scriptures are clear that everyone has sinned. So that means every one of us is broken. Every one of us is incomplete. Every one of us is imperfect. We are disconnected. And yet, even while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, Jesus died for us to begin the restoration process of making us complete, making us perfect, making us like Jesus. So this is kind of our definition that we're going to operate with. Now, the other thing I like about this definition is it kind of gets back to the root of gospel, the word itself, because the word comes from Old English, God spell, just simply meaning good news. And this story, it is good news to realize that I was spiritually dead, and yet Jesus came to give me spiritual life, that I was broken, and he's coming to restore me, right? This is good news, and it's this good news that compels us in life. It should be what compels us when we gather together to worship. This is why we call these our worship gatherings. We come to celebrate and remember this gospel. And it's, it's why we, we sing. It's why we spend some time studying the scriptures. It's why we take of communion. It's because of this gospel story, this good news. It's also why we seek to grow. It's why I, I you know, encourage you guys, get into the scriptures. Have a reading plan. Spend some time talking to God during each day. Get into a growth group. Get with others. Study the scriptures. Grow because of this gospel. It's also why we give. You know, we talk here about giving your fist, your finances, your influence, your skills, and your time. These things that we try to hold on to. And yet, because of the gospel, we want to give. Jesus gave his life for us, and so we want to give our life over and let him use us for his good. But if you notice, I've left one off. Because at Riverwood, we talk about gather, grow, give, but there's one more. And you're reminded of it every single Sunday that you come and attend a worship gathering. When you leave those doors, you walk out and you see that little A-frame sign when it's not blown over in the wind like it is right now. But it says, go. Go and follow Jesus. This gospel is to compel us to go. And when we go... It's to be a blessing, it's to love, it's to give grace, but it is also to share the gospel. And so that's what we're going to talk about for these next three weeks of how to put go back in the gospel and that it's something that compels us to go. And we're going to use a synonym for the word go. And well, it's not truly a synonym, but for my purposes, it's a synonym. We're going to talk about share. The next three weeks, we're going to talk about sharing. I think internally, we know that sharing is good. We we teach it to our kids. We're inspired when we hear about others doing it. And I believe this idea of sharing is at the heart of the gospel. And so the next three weeks, we're going to talk about share the the wealth, share your life, and share the truth. 
right? Share, share your wealth, share the, your life, and share the truth. So this week, we're going to look at share the wealth. And to do that, we're going to dip into the Old Testament. We're going to Second Kings. So as we get ready to open the scriptures, let me pray. Father, thank you for this chance to get into the Word, to study what you have already written, which has been there for countless years, guiding your followers, those who place their faith in you. And for many of us in this room, that's, that's us. We've placed our faith in you. And so would you guide us today into all truth, because we believe that your truth sets us free. And today we will see that it sets us free to share. So Father, help us to capture this idea today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you know where Second Kings is, go ahead and open up. If you don't, I got a handy little cheat sheet on the screen for you. But I want everyone there, and I'm just going to warn you, the story is kind of long. It's going to start in chapter 6, and we're going to cover through much of chapter 7. I'll kind of try and give you highlights as we go through. But I also have to warn you that if this were, story was turned into a movie, it would be rated R. Because it's pretty grotesque. Now, not rated R for gratuitous sex or, or you know, over-the-top violence. No, it's, it's rated R simply because of the, like, apocalyptic-type themes in it. Like, we're going to read some things that are going to turn your stomach, all right? It, it's not going to be comfortable. And yet, in the middle of this gritty, raw story is this phenomenal example of sharing, and I want us to capture that today. So, 2 Kings chapter 6. The story starts in verse 24. What you see there is this king, Ben-Hadad of Syria, bringing in his army. If you dip back to um, more in chapter 6, you would discover that Syria, they're acting like many of the other countries. They're going to war, trying to expand their territory. Because territory would be wealth and power. And so Syria's attacking, and they're being fairly successful until they face Israel. They just seem to not be able to get Israel. And there's this really phenomenal story where the Syria comes in, tries to attack Israel. God blinds them. Elisha the prophet, who we're going to look at a little bit later, leads them totally away. And then they suddenly come to and realize, oh, wow. And so they're like, okay, Syria says we're, we'll, we're stop, we'll stop uh, invading Israel. Ah, but Samaria, one of Israel's territories, nah, that one's fair game. And that's what happens. Syria shows up and begins to besiege a major city in Samaria. But they don't have to try very hard because there is an intense famine going on. And so Syria decides, you know what? We've got, we brought enough food with us. We've got some water. We're just going to sit outside the city and we're just going to let them starve to death inside. Because anyone who tries to come out of the city, ah, we'll just kill them. So we'll just trap them inside. It was getting bad. Now, one scholar I read this week said that a donkey, a beast of burden, would cost you about 150 shekels. A shekel was worth a day's wages. So think about that. That's probably about, you know, five months worth of salary to save up for this uh, donkey. I mean, so it's the equivalent of us, you know, buying a car. It, it could be pretty expensive. Yet they were so desperate, they were killing these beasts of burden to eat. And just the head alone of a donkey was costing 80 shekels. Yeah, Think about how much meat's on the head. Yeah, not very much. And even that's going for 80 shekels. And then in verse 25, it says that a certain amount of dove's dung was going for five shekels. Right? Now, I read some scholars that said it, dove's dung, it, it really is exactly what you think it is. It's pigeon poop. Right? And somehow they were like baking it and eating it. I mean, yeah, just, oh, gross. Now, a couple other scholars, they said, no, it's actually the pot of a plant that they were, uh, you know, that they called dove's dung. But even that normally wasn't eaten. The point is, they were so desperate, 
They were eating just disgusting things. But it actually gets worse. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Verse 26. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? We're going to put pause on there for a second. The king of Israel at this time is not a follower of God. He, he does not surrender to the king of, I mean, to the God of Israel, right? He follows in the footsteps of his parents and follows many other gods. And so he, in this moment, is becoming really sarcastic. He's, he's almost mocking this woman, like, God's not helping you, so what can I do, right? Am I going to go through the threshing floor? That's where they would, you know, beat out the wheat, but there is no more wheat. Or, or am I going to go to the wine press? <laughs> but we've got nothing else to drink. So he, he dips into sarcasm for a moment, but then it's like he pulls back for a second, and he, he continues on. Verse 28, and the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son so that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him, but she has hidden her son when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. In that day, that was a sign of intense, deep mourning. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Sackcloth was something you wore when you were in mourning. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. It was so bad that moms were eating their children. It's horrible. And rather than fall to his knees crying out to God for help, this king blames it on Elisha. Because Elisha had been telling this king who would not fear God and surrender to him. He's telling the people who were following in the footsteps of their king, you've got to follow God. You've got to make him your Lord. You've got to place your faith in him. But the people weren't. And so God had been protecting them. When Syria tries to invade, he holds them back. He actually leads them away. But God has been warning them, you've got to repent, you've got to return, or I'm not going to hold them off forever. So the king, rather than surrender to God, says, I'm going to kill Elisha. This is his fault. He's brought this on us. So word gets to Elisha. A messenger is actually on his way. I think it's actually an assassin. And Elisha is sitting with some elders. And they're like, all right, bar the door. Don't let the guy come in. And the guy shows up and is like, we blame you. We blame God for this. And suddenly Elisha says, hey, God has something to say to you. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the word of the Lord. Oh, sorry. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now, you can imagine this messenger's response like, what? Like, this has been going on for weeks. <laughs> Elisha, you don't realize how bad it is. Like, a donkey's head is going for 80 shekels. And now you're saying a sea of flour, about seven quarts, enough to make bread for weeks. It's going to go for one shekel? No way. You're a dead man. So we pick up the story in verse 3. 
Now, there were four men who were lepers. If you don't know what a leper is, it was someone who was suffering leprosy. Uh, leprosy was just a general name given to these different types of skin disease. Uh, some of them were really, really bad. Well, there was one type of leprosy where it would literally, is as eaten away your flesh, it would actually deaden the nerves and you couldn't feel it. And like just parts of your body would just start falling off. And eventually, you know, your, your extremities, your, your fingers, your toes, your nose would just start eat, being eaten away and just disappear. It was pretty grotesque. They were also highly contagious. So many people who had leprosy had to live in camps outside the city. And so if your loved one got leprosy, you'd basically have to kick them out. And so if you wanted to go talk to them, you'd have to stand at a distance and talk because you didn't want to get it yourself. Or if you're trying to like bring them food or whatever, you'd have to set it down and then back away before they could come and get it. You would have no contact. Now, sometimes people were healed and able to reintegrate in, but oftentimes, once you had leprosy, you were stuck outside forever. And so we're going to hear about these four lepers today. So these four lepers were at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. And so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt, to come against us. And so they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank. And they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. And then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This, this day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. So now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. And then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household, and the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Well, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. And then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Pretty miraculous story, isn't it? Pretty gritty, 
hard to hear, and yet, wow. I mean, these Syrians, they thought they were super powerful. They thought they could take over this country. They were going to take over this city. They're sitting outside thinking, this is easy. We're just going to let them starve to death. And suddenly, they think they hear in the middle of the night an army coming after them. They panic and flee. And who discovers it? Four outcasts. These lepers. Put yourself in the lepers' uh, sandals for a minute. Right? They, they, first of all, they're probably not going to be allowed into the city. But even if they could get in, there's no food, so they're going to starve there. But if they just continue to sit where they're at, there's no food and water, so they're going to starve right there. So who blames them? I mean, it's just like we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Let's just give it a try. I mean, because the Syrians kill us, it's the same end. We're going to die. But if they some reason have mercy on us, then we live. We could at least get some food. So imagine, it's, it's dark out. And as they start walking up, there's no guards. There's no outpost. And they're getting closer and closer to the camp. And it's completely silent. And, and I'd imagine like, you know, some flag planted in the ground. and the, It's blowing and tent flaps blowing in the wind. And they can't quite see. And, and I'm sure they're getting scared. Probably it's like a scene out of a horror movie. Just waiting for the or- orchestra to hit, you know, that big note to scare you. But there's no scare. They, they come in and suddenly they realize one of the tents is empty. And they come in and they fumble around in the dark. And right there, there's some food. And they start gorging themselves. And then they realize, oh, there's clothing and there's, there's some gold. And, and they begin to, to take it all. And they're like, let's, let's get out of here before they come back. And so they take off and they bury it. But then it's like, maybe they're not back yet. So they sneak back to camp, start taking a little bit more, taking it back. And they're starting to think, we've hit payday. I imagine, you know, if they do this a few times, they're, they're walking around camp like, hey, look what I found. Like, they're no longer scared. And then it dawns on them. What are we doing? Look, look at it again. Verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. You see, when you have something good, you share it. Have you ever been to a really good restaurant? You enjoy your meal so much. What do you do? You tell someone. Like, you got to go check this out. It's so good. Or, or if you're ever watching a sporting event and you see an amazing play, suddenly, like, people are getting on Facebook and Twitter going, wow, did you see that? they got to share the experience. Or, or they watch a really, really good movie or, or a story. It, it touches them. What do they do? They go and they tell. They share. These lepers, they find something good. They find this gold and silver, but more than that, they find food. They find donkeys. They find horses, clothing. They find something good. And they, at first, want to hoard it for themselves, but then they realize this is too good. This is a day of good news. And so they run back to the city, and they tell. They share. This is the heart of the gospel. We are to share However, sometimes I think we miss out on the very things that we could share. I I think we don't always realize the good things that we already have. For for instance, if you have a home, you have a good thing. So use it. Share it. If, you know, invite someone over for a meal. Uh, You know, let someone come over, watch a movie, watch the game with you. You know, someone needs a place to crash. You know, let them have your couch or you've got a spare bedroom. Share your home. It's a good thing. Share your wealth. 
If you have a car, you have a good thing. It doesn't have to be fancy to get you from point A to point B. Then give someone a ride. You know, if, if someone's out of a vehicle and you have two, let them borrow it for a time until their other's repaired. Share your wealth. If you have, you know, extra clothing just sitting in your closet and you're not wearing it, you're not using it, share your wealth. Bag it up, donate it to trinkets and togs, let someone else benefit from it. You have been blessed, so you should go and share. But if you follow Jesus, you have something even greater than houses and cars and clothing. You have the gospel. You have this good news. You may not realize it, but you're in this story. You are the lepers. You were born into spiritual leprosy, and there was nothing you could do to heal yourself. And yet, you stumbled upon these riches. God opened your eyes and let you see God's grace. And so here are these riches. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that we have every spiritual blessing under heaven. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are rich. So you should share the wealth. At the heart of the gospel is this giving God. Jesus gave of himself when he was on this earth. We see him sharing food with people. We see him sharing healing. He, he shares his words, but ultimately he shared his life. He went and died on the cross to redeem these broken and imperfect people so that we could be restored into the perfect and complete image of him. And so if we're going to be restored into his image, the image that God put in mankind when he put in Adam and Eve in Genesis, that image that was broken through sin, is it being restored? It's to become and look more like Christ. So that means we should be living like Jesus lived and loving like Jesus loved. And if Jesus came to share, we should go and do likewise. We should share. We should be the most generous people this world has ever interacted with. It's to go and be a blessing. And so, yeah, it's to share your house. It's to share your car. It's to share your clothes. But even deeper, it should be to share the gospel. And you share it through your actions. You share it through your presence. And you share it through your words. Because when you have something good, you share it. And the thing is, when you share, you actually show you care. It makes the other person feel valuable. This is the heart of the gospel. And so part of putting go back in the gospel is to actually share. However, sometimes our first reaction is just like the lepers. We want to hoard it to ourselves. I've actually met people who do not invite others to their church because they like their church so much, they're afraid that if other people come, it will grow, it will change, and it won't be the same, and it won't be good anymore. And so they don't invite. They hoard it. To themselves. And that's the opposite of a Christ-like response. We are to be givers. We should be sharing. And so we should be sharing our church. We should be sharing invitations as we also share our homes and share our wealth and share the gospel. I saw this uh, lived out. I've seen it lived out many, many times, but I want to tell you one story that I thought about as I was working on my message. It involves Tim and Zach. Uh, Tim was one of the young adults at the church where I was a young adult pastor, and Tim was very, very active. Uh, he was a leader. He, he, he had this ability to get people involved. And we started this uh, midweek ministry called Watershed. It wasn't just out of our church. We, we cooperated with several churches. 
And it was to give these young adults this opportunity to worship through song, to hear teaching that would kind of compel them as young adults how to live their life at work and out in the world. And then one of our big emphases was to connect into a local church. And so we, we began, and it was a good thing. To this day, I can go on Facebook, see a number of people that were heavily involved in Watershed, and I see the connection. They look back on that time fondly. It was a really good thing, and we saw God do some really awesome things. So it would be easy for someone to want to hoard Watershed for themselves. So when Zach showed up at work as a new, fresh-out-of-college rookie, and he ends up being put in the same area as Tim— Zach finds out that Tim is a Christian, and Zach begins to hound Tim with questions. Some of them a bit antagonistic. He'd had some bad experiences with Christians. He saw a lot of hypocrisy. He thought organized religion was a little scary. He was a bit doubtful. And so he just peppered Tim with questions. And, and Tim, to be honest, he didn't always have good answers, didn't know what to say. He tried. But eventually he just starts saying, you know what? You should come to this thing on Thursday nights. This, this group called Watershed. Now, Tim could look at Zach and say, oh, I don't know that I want you at Watershed. You're probably going to like push everyone away because you're so intense. But no, he didn't. He didn't hoard it for himself. He shared. So he shared an invitation. Eventually, Zach took him up on it and came. I found out that Zach actually had attended like three or four times, but would always slip out before the last song. So he'd intentionally arrive late. He'd slip out early because he still wasn't too sure about this. But finally, after about four weeks, he actually stuck around, and I finally got to meet this mysterious Zach, right? I'm like five foot eight. He was like six foot four, big guy, could take me out in a heartbeat, an offensive lineman, and yet a friendship formed. And so one day we went out for lunch, and I wanted to get to know this guy. And so I'm like, Zach, tell me about yourself. Like, where are you from? Tell me about your family. And he just looks at me and smiles and goes, we don't have time. And he launches right into his questions. We spent the next hour just intense, like, what about this? What about this in the Bible? What about this in science? What about this? Just peppering me. We ended our time with me saying, hey, if you have any more questions, email. Just send me an email, and I'll try and do my best. But the biggest thing for you is you've got to understand the gospel. About two weeks went by. I didn't hear from Zach. Kind of wondered, what's going on? So I shot him an email saying, hey, how you doing? Haven't heard from you. And I get an email back that basically said, I'm now a follower of Jesus. I realize it's true. He'd found Jesus. He began to follow him. All because Tim was not pushed away by Zach's intense questioning. Instead, he shared watershed. He shared his life. He tried to share his answers. And then I had a chance to sit with him. And I shared the gospel. And Zach responded. Zach is now married to Aaron. I had a chance to officiate their wedding. Also had the joy of baptizing Zach, which was really hilarious as he stood like this, and I'm trying to dunk him. Uh, I think people didn't think I would get him up. He, you know, he, but he now still follows Christ. He, he, their first daughter was born with Down syndrome. Uh, they ended up becoming very actively involved in a, a group of parents with Down's kids, ended up becoming the president of the, the organization. Uh, they actually adopted another little girl from Ecuador who had Down's, and now they've had two more kids. Their fourth one was just born in December. They're doing great, and they're following Jesus. But I sometimes wonder, where would Zach be? What would his life be like? If Tim hadn't shared the wealth, hadn't shared an invitation to Watershed, hadn't tried to share answers, what, what would have happened if I would have just kind of pushed Zach off, not done lunch, didn't share the gospel with him? 
what would his life look like? You have the opportunity to impact this world. But it's because you have something good. Many of you have homes, you've got cars, you've got clothing, you've got food. You should be sharing. But more than that, if you say, I follow Jesus, you have the gospel. And the gospel is not just some story designed to tantalize ears and entertain eyes. It is the ongoing story of God redeeming broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the image of Christ. This is a story that changes lives. So shame on us if we try to hoard this for ourselves. Instead, let's go. Let's be a blessing through our actions, through our presence, and through our words. Let's not be lepers that hoard to ourselves. Let's be the ones who run to the city and call out, we found something great. Let's share the wealth. So Father, I pray that you would do this. You would motivate us through your Holy Spirit that he would be the one who would go before us, impacting people's lives, who would be behind us as we go, that he would be the one to empower us, to be brave enough to say, hey, you can take this, you can have it, that we would be brave enough to share. Lord, help us to not live in fear, thinking we have to hoard things and, and keep it to ourselves, that we won't have enough. That instead, we have a God who, who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You have enough to provide for us. So Lord, help us to share, to share the, the, the wealth that we have, but ultimately to share the wealth that we have in Jesus, to share this gospel message and to share it with our actions, to share it with our presence, and ultimately to share it with words. God, I want to see you do something that only you can do, to heal lives, to restore people back into that image of Christ. I want to see you healing marriages. I want to see parents and kids reconciled. I want to see uh, people just launched out into to tremendous ministry. And I believe that happens through your gospel. So Lord, would you help of us as part of the Riverwood family to take this gospel and use it for your glory and that we would get the joy of watching you work through it. Lord, I want to see our world changed. I want to see the community radically altered through Jesus. So empower us. Go before us. Be behind us. Help us to take Christ to this hurting world. Help us to go back in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we sing the song in response? Thank you.